We stand on a lonely, windswept point on the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment, the air was dense with smoke and the cries of men, and the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. At dawn on the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, 225 rangers jumped off the British landing craft and ran to the bottom of these cliffs. Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion, to climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. The Allies had been told that some of the mightiest of these guns were here, and they would be trained on the beaches to stop the Allied advance. The Rangers looked up and saw the enemy soldiers, the edge of the cliffs, shooting down at them with machine guns and throwing grenades. And the American Rangers began to climb. They shot rope ladders over the face of these cliffs and began to pull themselves up. When one Ranger fell, another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a Ranger would grab another and begin his climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, the rangers pulled themselves over the top, and in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. 225 came here. After two days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. And behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the ranger daggers that were thrust into the top of these cliffs. And before me are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Puente de Hope. The Americans who fought here that morning knew word of the invasion was spreading through the darkness back home. They fought or felt in their hearts, though they couldn't know in fact, that in Georgia they were filling the churches at 4 a.m. In Kansas they were kneeling on their porches and praying. And in Philadelphia they were ringing the Liberty Bell. podcast i'm your host john Hendricks. Uh, on for this episode is retired army ranger medic leo jenkins um me and leo had an interesting conversation as um after leo's separation from the army he kind of had went through his uh struggles and kind of his dark times but he's uh found himself again and he really lives an interesting lifestyle because he is basically a, a modern day nomad and he um you know he travels to so many different countries and uh, gets to mix it in with so many different people and i think it's a really awesome way to live your life um so before i get into the interview with uh leo jenkins um earlier today uh early this morning and uh fdny battalion chief was killed in the bronx uh, up in the bronx um, when a, a marijuana grow house exploded, uh, the chief was killed and, and several others, including six police officers and nine firefighters, were injured. Um, I'd like to send my condolences out to the Faye family 
the battalion chief was name was uh, Michael J. Fay. Uh, he served for 17 years. Um, so, you know, for our hearts are heavy. And, and I, I, again, want to send my condolences out to the uh, family of uh, the battalion chief and, and um, all the firefighters and first responders, EMT, medical, uh, police officers who risk their lives daily uh, for us. So uh, with that being said now, I'll get into the interview I, I had with uh, Leo Jenkins. Hey, what's up, everybody? My guest for this episode is former Army Ranger medic Leo Jenkins. Um, Leo is a former Army Ranger, and he's also an author of three books. Uh, two of them I've read. They were very good books. And the two that I've read are At Least We Forget and On Assimilation. And his most recent book is First Train Out of Denver. Uh, Leo, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Uh, no worries, man. Thanks for coming on. So uh, we'll talk about a few different things, but I guess to get started, uh, can you just give the audience some of your background on like, you know, what got you into the Army and a little bit of what you did in the Army? Uh, yeah, I think as a lot of um, of the um, military service members from our particular generation, September 11th was a huge catalyst for me uh, to join the military. I was a firefighter and EMT in Arizona, and after that event, you know, it kind of changed the tides a little bit. I joined um, the following year uh, into the Army, uh, you know, went through the, the particular pipeline to become a Ranger medic, uh, and then served with uh, 3rd Ranger Battalion, Charlie Company specifically, uh, for a few years there. Um, after that, I got out kind of, uh, as you read in On Assimilation, I went through a little bit of a tumultuous um, uh, assimilation process and, and kind of... Had a, had a tough time finding my way. I did a little bit of contracting, uh, worked as a medic for the DEA FAST team in Afghanistan, doing some uh, counter-narco-terrorist work uh, there, as well as training some of their NIU uh, narcotic interdiction unit guys, um, you know, in the process simultaneously of going to school, started a business. Um, the business w went great. You know, it was a, a CrossFit gym that I owned for several years. And, um, about three years ago, I decided enough of that. And I, I sold everything I owned minus a single backpack, moved to Costa Rica, and then have for the last three years just kind of been bopping around ever since. Uh, I've traveled through about three dozen countries and, and been working on writing and um, some documentary filmmaking and things of that effect. So that's the that's the short version. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I, I read your book uh, on a simulation and I remember thinking that, um, you know, that's a, it was a very important piece of writing to kind of give insight for Americans into what it's like, you know, because a, a lot of uh, guys do have, you know, been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. And, and then, you know, amongst veterans, I've heard guys talk about how, you know, some people are, would claim they have it just for their benefits and that kind of thing. And so it's, it's kind of a, Unch it's uncharted territory for America, and I guess we're still trying to figure it out. But, you know, a, a large part of what you illustrated in the book was how there's a, you know, the, the, the issue of you assimilating back into society was, um, you know, some of that stems from being separated from the Army, not so much that having... Um, you know, post-traumatic stress from, you know, events that you went through in the Army, you know? 
Yeah, you, I mean, you have this, obviously, anyone who's served in the military and specifically in any kind of a special operations unit, you have a very cohesive, very tight-knit brotherhood. Um, and when you remove yourself from that, you know, it does create quite a bit of, I believe, cognitive dissonance. One, in the sense that, you know, your best support group, the people who are going to understand you better than anyone else in the world, um, you know, the things that you're going through, they're no longer there. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you're, you're kind of peeling yourself away and you're, you're isolating yourself in a, in a sense. And I think a lot of guys, when they do that, they have this feeling of like, I quit on my brothers. You know, this war is still going on and I give up on them. And I do believe that that leads to um, a significant amount of the, the mental anguish that guys go through. Uh, it lends to it uh, significantly. And then also the other the other factor, of not having someone there um, who really, truly understands who's been in that situation uh, to discuss those issues with. Uh, it can it can lead to, you know, some pretty negative things. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, amongst veterans, you especially guys who are feeling the effects of the separation and things like that, you know, alcohol becomes a a factor in it. Um, on the last episode, I had a former 18 Delta Special Forces medic who had several uh, traumatic brain injuries and was diagnosed with PTSD. And uh, at the time, he was, you know, drinking heavy, he was an alcoholic. So he had to go through a program to help him control the drinking as well as try and uh, work on some of the uh, issues that he's having from his brain injury. And, um, you know, I, I guess now that the, the wars were uh, winding down and, and in terms of having like large troop deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, more guys are coming home, more guys are getting out. So now to deal with it, you know, it's it, people aren't sure what to do, you know, and, and, uh, Veterans Affairs obviously is um, not as effective as people want it to be, or in some cases, not a, a effective at all. You know, so uh, it's an important issue, and um, you know, for anyone who's interested in re reading Leo's book, it's called Honest Simulation, and he de details and documents his uh, his life after his separation from the army. And, uh, and where can people pick that up if they're interested in, in reading that? Uh, Amazon's always the easiest. Um, you can just type in Leo Jenkins and, and all the books that I've uh, either written or co-authored. Uh, Violence of Action is another one that I had the opportunity to co-write with uh, Marty Scoglin. Um, uh, and then along with, with that, First Train at Denver and, and, and Lest We Forget are also on there. It's, and they're all uh, available on Amazon. But you, you hit on, on something like guys you know, you know, coming back and having to deal with all this and, and, you know, the VA being somewhat ineffective. And there are, there are, you know, and I, I finally found it's taken me years, but I finally found a couple of, of amazing, amazing people in the VA. They're there. I think that they're kind of um, uh, bound a little bit by uh, the copious amounts of red tape that that particular bureaucratic organization is known for. Uh, it's tough for them to do their job because of the policies of the VA. Um, you know, even though that they, there's quite a few people in that organization that really want to help, it is difficult because of those policies. And so what, what we've seen, I think, in the last eight to 10 years is a lot of these veterans who are exceptionally capable, you know, regardless of having post-traumatic stress and TBI, they're, they're still, they still know what they were able to accomplish when they were part of a team, when they were in the service. And for those who can remember that, 
um, and uh, to to play off of that. These are the people who have been creating some of these phenomenal organizations, which essentially uh, have given veterans a mission now. And I think that that's um, a really, really huge part of, of assimilating um, is not so much like, oh, I have to be just like the civilian populace. It, it's more, you know, I had this once great mission uh, where my country was depending on me. They were relying on me and I was there. Right. And I shouldered the burden of, um, of, of war for my country. And I come back and a lot of times there just isn't the same um, level of expectation on you, right? So then that's another reason why guys will start to bury themselves with alcohol um, and and um, other self-medicating, um, uh, say, stop gaps, right? It's not really a good long-term fix. But a big part of that, right, as far as a long-term fix goes, is finding a mission, right? So once guys have, you know, we, we see some of the best um, and most effective charity organizations uh, now, look who have started them. You know, you look at stuff like Gallant Few, um, Carl Monger, right, started that. You look at um, yeah, Team Red, White, and Blue. You look at, um, you know, I'm associated now um, with Team 5. These are organizations, and there's there's plenty more. Um, they've been started by guys who go, you know what, like, I'm, I'm still capable of doing a significant amount. Just because I'm, I'm no longer in uniform doesn't mean I can't help out in a very significant way. Uh, and then they're creating these platforms uh, that bring other people in, other service members in, and, and give them a mission as well. Um, so really, like to me, that's 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 one of the ways that, yeah, the VA is not really getting it done. But I'm very, very proud of our particular community because they're coming in. They're they're being the change that we need. They're creating these organizations that really do help um, our, our fellow veterans find uh, a new sense of purpose and a new mission. Yeah, that was one thing that was touched on on a previous episode where um, we were talking about how, you know, the guys, especially guys from infantry and uh, special operations units are, are trained to such high levels and they have that never quit attitude. And then, like you said, when when you get out, you feel like you don't have that mission anymore and you lose that sense of purpose. But I think, you know, some some everyone's different. So people... Some people, I guess, will transition uh, pretty easily, and then other guys will kind of struggle a little bit, and then some people will have a really hard time. But I think for the the people who are, are struggling or having a hard time, I think they just have to remember that you know you have these skill sets and you and you have the the methodology to figure you know to figure things out to um, you know to complete uh, your mission or whatever it is. So. Applying those same mindset and methodology that you learned in the military and just apply that to everyday life, whether it be starting a business or, you know, going back to school, whatever it is. And I think guys will see that, you know, all you have to do really is, is you know, you have the same skill set, but now you're just switching it to something else. And Absolutely. If, if you applied it, you know, if, if you went out a problem the same way, you know, you, you're handed a mission or something like that. And, and you guys are trying to figure out the best way to execute the mission. Just apply that same tenacity and that same focus to whatever it is you're doing. And, and you'll have, you know, plenty of success. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, there's uh, one of the members from uh, Team Red, White and Blue. He has this great statement that, uh, you know, we overestimate what we can accomplish in a week and we underestimate what we can accomplish in a year. And I think a lot of people 
you know, they get into this mindset that, um, you know, I'm not really doing anything. I'm not really accomplishing anything since I've been out. And, you know, if you look back, you know, I get into that mode. I'm like, man, I haven't really done anything compared to the significance of what I did. Um, you know, and I've, it's going to be here pretty soon. It'll be 10 years since I've, I've uh, been removed from, from Ranger Battalion. And I, you know, when you look back on that decade, you go, wow, I've actually done a lot, you know, but the week to week, you're like, man, I'm just not getting the same amount done day to day as I did when I was when I was in that unit, because, you know, I'm not waking up at four o'clock in the morning and going for an eight mile run every day anymore. You know, it's just, um, you know, I'm not, you know, you're not packing as much into a day anymore, but the amount that you're still capable of accomplishing in a year and specific, and especially a decade is incredibly significant. Um, and I think a lot of people lose sight of that. Uh, they lose track of how much they are actually accomplishing in their life post-military. And it can be one of those um, small, but still detrimental factors in, in someone's assimilation that they just think that they're not, they're not accomplishing anything or that they don't really have a purpose. Um, and so, yes, while it is difficult to step out from that large of a purpose, right? When you're, when your purpose is to make sure that your brother next to you comes home, that's very, very lofty, uh, to step into another set of purpose. It's, it's easy to feel like you don't have one at all. Uh, but really, you know, start looking at, at the accomplishments based off of a year rather than a day. And I think a lot of people will see that, um, they're really getting a lot done. Yes, that's a great point. Um, so, so let's. You brought up Team Five. Let's talk about Team Five for a little bit. Um, I've been following Team Five on social media for a while now, and um, you know, it seems like a very interesting, uh, important mission that's being uh, undertaken at Team Five. Can you explain for the audience a little bit of what it is Team Five does? Uh, essentially, you know, their, their mission statement, Team 5, is a, it's a foundation that's comprised of special operations medical practitioners, uh, survival experts, and civilian ultra-athletes, right? Uh, it's a five-person team that ventures to some of the most extreme remote locations in the world to provide medical assistance. Um, it was founded by a, uh, a man named Eric Linder, uh, who's spent a significant amount of time as a special operations uh, medical practitioner. Uh, and essentially, again, it's, it's taking, you know, five, you know, former special operations medical practitioners and putting them, um, in nasty, nasty places where most people don't want to go, uh, including a lot of civilian doctors and providing medical care to people who really, really, truly need it because it's such a small team. Um, you know, logistically it's, it's, um, not a juggernaut, right? to handle like you can um you know you can get these five people in uh, to some some tight locations and keep them there for a week week and a half uh and do a, a significant amount of good and then you know bring them out um i just returned from a mission uh with team five um mind you i'm the fng right i'm the new guy on the team and i'm i'm the, i was the sole medic uh, on this particular team uh, we had um an oral surgeon uh formerly of second uh, ranger battalion um as well as um uh, Eric and uh, a plastic surgeon who came along with us. He did uh, several reconstructive surgeries on on children while we were there, um, and a uh, pediatric uh, care nurse. Um, so you know it's a kind of a dynamic team that can go in and get a lot done in a short period of time. People that aren't um, foreign uh, or unaccustomed to um, you know sleeping on the ground and you know uh, you know maybe not sleeping all that much at all even. Uh, 
as well as, um, you know, maybe not getting a hot meal, you know, when they're right at noon, you know, like they're people that are, it's a, it's a dynamic team that just gets a lot of work done in a short period of time. So, uh, like I said, we just returned from Peru. Uh, I, I believe the numbers show we treated just over 500 patients, um, in three different villages in, um, in five days, I also taught a, a tactical combat casualty course for the top 27 uh, special operations medic throughout their entire military. So their Air Force, uh, Army, Navy, and Marines, their top 27 guys, I, I had the honor of teaching them for three days. Uh, and then going out outside the wire with them and, and uh, you know, helping villagers. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really cool dynamic mission uh, that I'm hoping to see um, really, really grow. It's a foundation that I, I strongly believe in, and I, I hope to see a lot more uh, of their impact in the world in the future. Yeah, you know, I, I think organizations like Team Five and Team Five, obviously, um, you know, it, it's incredibly selfless to to go into a place that's, you know, a, a bad area, you know, regardless of where it's located in the world, and to to give back and train people in you know, your, your field, your craft, where you've spent years, uh, developing your skills. And, um, so for, so for team five specifically, um, are you guys like recruiting? Like if, if anyone was interested in learning more about team five, is there somewhere they can go to and, and get some more information? Uh, yeah, there, obviously social media that, that you're following, um, is, you know, you go on Instagram, I think it's Team 5 Foundation. The Facebook, I'm pretty sure, is the same. Um, and then their website, uh, Team 5 Team Five Foundation, um, or Team 5, sorry, Team Slash 5.org. Um, and then there's, there's some videos uh, on there of previous missions. We shot a lot of uh, footage for this one, myself and um, the founder of Combat Flip Flops, uh, uh, Griff. Um, as he's as he's known in the community, uh, another former second ranger battalion guy. Um, so you know we shot uh, a significant amount there. We're hoping to be able to show that to people so that they get uh, a better idea of what we do. As far as recruiting, again, <laughs> I'm the new guy. Uh, feel uh, you know it's kind of outside of my pay grade. Um, feel free though. I, I think through Facebook you can message um, or go on the website and contact uh, Eric through there. Um, I know they're always interested in in. Uh, and looking at, at new uh, medical practitioners um, to be able to take on, on different missions. I think tentatively the next mission is March. So right now the team is doing roughly two missions a year, give or take. Um, and again, it's a, it's a small team, right? So um, I think from my position, from what I heard, there was like 30 or 40 applicants um, for that medical slot. Uh, so it is it is pretty competitive, uh, but it's one of those things where I know, you know, speaking with Eric, that uh, they really want more missions to be going on um, each year. Uh, and a lot of it comes down to funding. So, you know, we had some phenomenal corporate sponsors on this last endeavor uh, that really helped make uh, this trip happen. Um, you know, the people who donated uh, to Team 5 so that we could get the plane tickets to go um, and then volunteer our time. You know, I'm, I'm an author, so my time is um, it's very flexible. It's very malleable. Uh, whereas, you know, um, Keith, the, the surgeon who came on, you know, he took vacation. His wife uh, took vacation to, to be uh, our, um, our translator. Uh, you know, Griff took his vacation. Eric took their vacation time to go and do this. Um, so it's, it is 100 percent volunteer. So people that, you know, want to be a part of the organization should know that up front. Um, and, and again, it's because of the, the phenomenal corporate sponsors uh, that have really helped to put 
uh, our particular boots uh, on the ground in these locations. So yeah, you can go to team5.org uh, um, or their Facebook or their Instagram, get a hold of, uh, get a hold of Eric and, and I'm sure that he can work something out with you. Yeah. So for anyone who's interested, uh, you know, check it out on social media, check out the website. Um, you know, they do great work and, um, you know, for, for anybody who, you know, with these skills of medic, uh, military medic background, uh, you know, just be sure to check it out. And so Leo, uh, you've, you sold your business three years ago or, or you just, yeah, I, I sold it. I owned, um, I was one of the owners of a CrossFit gym in Denver. It was actually, I think my fourth gym, um, sold that, sold my vehicle, sold everything that wouldn't fit into a single red backpack that I had. And I, I moved, I, I kind of dipped out there, um, moved to Costa Rica initially, um, competed in the CrossFit Games Open uh, in 2014, I guess it was. I competed as an individual competitor at regionals in the Southwest region for the two years before that, um, competed in Latin America in that region. I actually came in first in the Open. Um, I got an invitation to go down to Santiago, Chile and compete with the top 48 um, men in, in over the 20 countries that comprise the Latin American region. Um, it was a really cool experience. I met some phenomenal people there. I kind of decided that my time competing in anything um, at that point was kind of done. Um, that was my last competition. And then I just kind of took to travel and I took my red backpack around the world. I traveled with, um, again, fellow fellow author Marty Scoblin on a, uh, on a trip that became a documentary that's actually on Amazon right now called Nomadic Veterans. Uh, the premise was we started in Denver, Colorado. Uh, with a, a backpack and a hundred bucks. And we we're going to try to see how far we could get in three weeks. The further we could get, the more money we were going to raise for the veteran charity Gallant Few. Uh, three weeks later, we were in Slovenia in Eastern Europe um, out of money. So we raised, I think, close to $30,000 for that charity. Uh, he flew back. His wife was seven months pregnant um, at the time that we did that trip. So wow. he, he had a beat feet back to the States. I continued traveling to travel through Eastern Europe. Um, went to Russia, to Thailand, uh, traveled across Australia, traveled across New Zealand, to Fiji, to Hawaii. It had been something I thought about was drinking a beer in every state. Um, I was pretty close to that. I, I started that when I was in Ranger and Doc, just kind of trying to get my mind off of the absolute beating that we were taking and, and started thinking about, you know, traveling around the country and drinking beer in different places. And uh, so I started a list. And so when I got to uh, Hawaii, I decided to fly from there to Alaska. I gave myself 24 hours to buy a vehicle, whatever it was that I bought was going to take to North and South Dakota and complete that 50 beers. Um, Cause those were the last two States that I had. And, you know, I bought this, this monster of a, it was a Dodge 2500 Ram van car van and started driving it through Yukon and, and through British Columbia and, you know, down Canada and, and into North and South Dakota. And, you know, I just, that was kind of the end of my trip when I started it. I was like, okay, I've finished what I, what I set out to do here. Um, but I just kind of kept rumbling on, uh, drove down to southern tip of Baja, Mexico, um, looped back up the Baja, down through mainland, through Guatemala, through El Salvador, through um, Honduras, Nicaragua, uh, Costa Rica, and then finally ended at the very, where the road completely ends in southern Panama. Um, so it took me about 20 months to, to drive down to the southern tip of Panama uh, from Anchorage, Alaska, uh, and then back up. I kind of picked up surfing along the way, um, uh, sold the van in Costa Rica, and then and then bought a truck and started living out of it, kind of just traveling around. So, yeah, I've been nomadic. I, I've 
the size of the backpack has increased a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, but the, the premise is still the same. Um, is it, you know, just to explore uh, new countries, you know, new cultures, you know, get to know people all over the world and try to kind of expand my concept of, of um, or rather expand my, um, my, my viewpoints on uh, the world as a whole of humanity, of war, uh, all of these things to kind of in, enrich my, uh, my perspectives. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm down back down in southern Baja right now as we speak, maybe 40 minutes north of Cabo San Lucas in a little fishing village called Pescadero uh, that I really enjoy. Uh, so, yeah, I, I've kind of just I, I kind of pulled the reserve shoot here close to three years ago and, and I haven't looked back since. I've been very happy to be a nomad. Yeah, recently I read an article. I, I forget where it was at uh, that I read it, but uh, they were talking about how traveling has a positive effect on your brain. Um you know, in, in several different ways, like reducing stress and things like that. And, um, you know, traveling is something that, you know, I've enjoyed and, and, I, and I plan to continue to enjoy as I, you know, go to different parts of the world. Um, but I think it's it's awesome that you're doing that. And I, I've also read an article that talked about how there's been an increase of, of Americans who are living like this. And, um, like people just quitting their jobs, you know, getting in a van and just driving. And it's definitely something I would like to try out. I'm just not sure if I'm ready yet, you know? <laughs> well, when you, when you are ready, hit me up. I've got some pointers. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm more than happy to help out. It was, it was really funny. It was, it was actually like a, um, surreal thing, right? Like, um, I got, I was interviewed, I don't know, maybe like right when first train out of Denver was published, like back in May, I was interviewed uh, for, by all by all people from the the military times, um, and it was about an article about veterans going nomad. And you know, if you were to ask the the, the private right, the two thousand three version of myself, um, you know, Private Jenkins, like, hey, do you ever think that you'll be in the Army Times for living in a van? You know, <laughs> I, I I would probably laugh at you and and you know tell you to piss off, but. Um, you know, it was, it was this real surreal thing. And I got a copy of the army times and, you know, there's like a four page, um, article with these big photos of me, like surfing and like down in Guatemala in this van, you know, like, like of all things. But, but I think that a lot of people, and this isn't, I don't, it's not something that's brand new, right? Our, our Vietnam veterans, um, there's a, there was a large occurrence of them going essentially nomadic being hobos. Uh, traveling back and forth across the U.S. and, you know, trying to find some form of solace in, 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 you know, what they had just done and coming back from war and the gravity of all that. And I really, truly believe that it's an exceptionally cathartic um, uh, way of life when you can kind of put everything on the back burner and just focus on your own uh, spiritual health, your own emotional health, uh, and your own mental health and go and to pursue the things in the world that you that you, that bring you comfort, right? Um, I've talked to, to several veterans. Um, I had the opportunity uh, to hang out with um, a former special force medic named Nick Gaines uh, uh, last week. I was writing, I'm, I'm writing right now um, a, a book for an EOD tech uh, named Mary Day who lost both of her arms in Iraq in 2007. He was actually the medic who saved her life. He's been traveling nomadically now for quite some time. Um, and it's just, it was really, really, really cool to exchange experiences with him as far as, you know, him using mountaineering, um, you know, climbing and, and, you know, went and worked on a fishing boat uh, for quite some time. Um, and there's there's countless stories of these guys going and doing this post post war to try to gather themselves a little bit. And I, I really do find uh, and from the people that I've talked to and that I've interviewed 
that it is a significantly better form of therapy than the psychotropic drugs that are crammed down our throats by the VA uh, to go and find what I've, I've started calling the state of flow, right? Whether that's downhill mountain biking or rock climbing or surfing or whatever it is that brings you that positive rush, um, it really helps to rewire the brain, um, you know, away from that post-traumatic stress uh, that, you know, was laid in in a state of flow, a different state of flow um, in during combat. Um, so, yeah, there there is, a, I think, a lot more uh, precedence that's being set for guys who are um, returning from war and, and finding a lot of um, solace in this particular uh, lifestyle. Uh, have you ever read um, The Book of Five Rings by Musashi Miyamoto or are you familiar with it? I am familiar with it. I have not read it. You you should check it out because um one of the one of the like it's, it's five different chapters and, and like each one has a different uh it's named by a different element like earth wind fire and in his chapter on water he talks about flowing a lot and um okay yeah so it's something you might find interesting now that you mentioned uh, that so and also the the soldier you were talking about who lost her arms is that the same uh. She was in range 15. Is that who that is? Yeah, that's Mary. Yeah. Or okay. as her, on Instagram is uh, wonder nubs, I believe is her handle there, but okay. Uh, yeah. She was, she was in range 15, uh, with all those hooligans, yeah. uh, <laughs> phenomenal story. I, I spent, I went, I flew directly from Peru to her place in, um, in Florida and spent five days essentially interviewing her. We were at work probably 10 to 15 hours a day, um, going over her story and, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm tasked now with I'm transcribing it. Uh, so hopefully sometime next late spring, early summer, um, that book will be out and uh, people can read more about her backstory. And it's it's exceptionally compelling. Um, I'm, I'm very honored and proud to, to be able to be the one to kind of help help get her story out. So, yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, and, you know, I like how you were talking about. um you know, how veterans, you know, Vietnam veterans were, were coming back and trying to diving into, you know, getting their spiritual health right, getting their emotional state right. And I think, you know, general, not not just veterans, but humans in general, people seem, to, I think, tend to overlook that and the, the importance of it. Like, um, you know, a lot of people work 40 hour weeks or 40 plus hours, you know, a week. And you know, I understand, you know, people have to pay bills and things like that. And maybe you have a family or whatever, but it's not to me, that's not really living, you know, that's just like surviving. And I think to be able to travel to different countries and experience different things and, you know, learn new hobbies and, and that sort of thing, I think that really has a, a therapeutic effect on, on the human mind. And um, it's it's awesome to hear about, you know, how well that's working for you. Because uh, I know, you know, from reading your book on assimilation, you, you, you reached a low point, you know, after you got out of the army. Um, so so for guys who are listening, I think, uh, you know, if anyone, uh, veterans, army veterans, you know, marine veterans, air force veterans, you know, whatever uh, service it was that you were coming from, you know, perhaps this is something to take a look into as, as a, a way to help heal and, and to kind of find your purpose again, you know? Absolutely. And it's, it's amazing how many new opportunities open up when you allow them to, right? When you go to new places, you know, I've been offered more jobs in the last three years since I've been nomadic 
than I ever did, you know, collectively in the seven years post-military since that time, right? By going to new places and introducing yourself to new people, new opportunities will naturally arise. And some of these jobs, it's like, well, that's really interesting. I didn't really, you know, think that I had a background and you know, I don't have a background in this. Um, I didn't realize that, you know, that I was, um, you know, it's something I never would have like considered being able to do. Uh, but again, when you put yourself in those situations, opportunities, new growth opportunities arise. And, and again, I understand for some people, it's like, well, I have a family. I can't really do that. Um, but that's that's not necessarily true. It just it depends on how you go about doing it. Um, again, I mentioned Marty Scovelin. Uh, you know, he traveled. He lived in a van for close to a year traveling across the United States uh, with his wife and his daughter and his dog. Um, yeah. And, and so it is possible, you know, it's, it's not always the easiest thing when you have a family. I understand that completely. Uh, but I think taking some time to be in your own personal energy uh, in nature is absolutely one of the best things that you can do uh, after war to be able to take that time and, um, and, and, and give that time to yourself and to be a little bit selfish in that regard. And, you know, people think, oh, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to put my career on hold, but uh, you know, you're really a lot more capable of helping more people in the long run if you can dial in your own, you know, your own demons and everything. Um, you know, whoever is your employer after that state is going to get a lot more out of you. Or, or if you're going to be an entrepreneur and start your own business, you're going to get a lot more out of yourself. Um, production wise, if you are if you are kind of minimum addressed uh, those issues that that a lot of people tend to suppress uh, when they come back because they feel like they need to jump right back in and they need to be productive and they need to have, uh, you know, this career and, and they kind of just compartmentalize and, and put all those other things that, that happen in combat on the shelf and, and kind of try to, you know, drink them silent for long periods of time. And then, you know, eventually they become, you know, more than, than any person can handle on their own. And that's, it's obviously not healthy. So, um, while I understand that, you know, Hey, selling everything you own and living out of a backpack for three years, isn't, necessarily a viable answer for everyone. I think every single combat veteran, every single human being um, owes it to themselves to take at least a little bit of time um, away from, you know, that cubicle or away from um, whatever job that they have and, and focus that energy on their own spiritual and emotional health. Um, because ultimately you're going to be a better person at the end of the year as a result of that, even if it's going someplace, hiking someplace for a week, you know, being out in nature, uh, you know, being in your own energy, I think is really, really um, a necessary thing that, as you stated before, we kind of overlook uh, oftentimes in Western society and specifically in the United States. Yeah, um, I think it was maybe like a month and a half ago. I, I saw this documentary on the uh, U.S. national parks and. You know, I, I'd known about them before, but I've never really got into any detail of, of learning about it. And, you know, I, I think it was like a 45 minute documentary. After I watched it, you know, I made a promise to myself that each year, you know, I'll probably do, I'll probably make one trip overseas somewhere. And then I'm, I'll definitely make a second trip to like a different national park in the United States. And, um, you know, I always tell people, you know, coworkers or, you know, people that I, I work with doing the podcast and, and articles and social media and stuff that, you know, I like, you don't, I feel like you don't always have to have a plan necessarily. Um, maybe you can have a general outline of what you want to do, but I, you know, I feel like if you put out good energy and, and you're receptive, um, you know, the universe returns that back to you, you know, it comes back in, in some form. Um, I believe that hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. So, 
You know, it's one thing I always tell people, and you know, everybody comes from different backgrounds, so people kind of have different beliefs. Uh, but you know, that's something that I, I firmly believe in. And um, you know, I, I'm glad that you came on because now, you know, I can point to this episode and say, "Look, check this out," and you know, see how this has worked for uh, Leo Jenkins. You know, um, so you know, in your book, lest we forget. It was more of, you know, talking about kind of your career in the uh, Army and and your time in uh, Ranger Battalion. Uh, it was kind of my introspection on being a medic in Ranger Battalion. You know, it, there was um, I, I wanted to make that book as real, true to form to life in Ranger Battalion as possible. Um, so, you know, there there is there's as much stories about, you know, anecdotes that, you know, uh, things that happen at a bar or, you know, us going down to Panama City and yeah. uh, kind of the, the the barrack shenanigans that anyone who's ever been in the military as a, a lower enlisted uh, understands. Right. Um, you know, because it's not just, you know, when you spend whatever amount of time you spend in the military, it's not just war, war, war. Um, you know, there's uh, there's other aspects and elements to it. And that was one of the things that I, I found was kind of lacking in a lot of other, uh, I guess, military memoirs. Uh, but I wanted to have a pretty even balanced look at this is the way that life is coming up um, in a unit like, uh, you know, any infantry unit, but specifically the 75th Ranger Regiment. Uh, and then also here's what uh, a deployment to a couple deployments to Afghanistan and to Iraq look like from the medics perspective. Um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, it was it was interesting because I didn't set out to write a book when when I wrote that. Um, a, a good friend of mine, um, Yasin Donov. Uh, who was a writer for Softrep, asked me if I would write an article for him uh, uh, one month. And, and so, uh, you know, I wrote a story about a mission that I was on and, and it kind of went out and, and people were very uh, positively receptive of that story. And I was encouraged to write more. And it actually became, honestly, writing that book became one of the most cathartic uh, floodgate opening aspects of my assimilation in the last 10 years. Uh, that me actually penning those experiences uh, in war and, and directly after war really kind of opened my eyes to say, man, like maybe I need to maybe I need to reevaluate what I'm doing right now and and maybe maybe look for some help someplace. Um, you know, obviously, we discussed already the VA isn't always the best place to go for that. I tried that. Uh, but yeah, writing Less We Forget was really, you know, in hindsight, one of the most cathartic things I've done in my life. It wasn't the intention initially when I set out. And it wasn't supposed to be a book. I figured maybe a hundred people would want it, um, and that would be like my platoon and like my grandma and my dad, and my <laughs> sisters would be the only people that really gave a shit about that book. Um, but as it turned out, you know, it it, it kind of caught fire a little bit, and um, you know, it was, you know, I'm, I actually have rewritten it since then. I've written a second edition that I'm excited to hopefully have out here in the next few months. Um, nice. The first one wasn't edited very well. Uh, actually, uh, it wasn't really edited at all. It wasn't formatted. You know, I, I did the entire thing myself. I did the cover myself. I did the formatting myself um, because, again, I just it was kind of just like a neat little project that I put together in hopes that guys from my platoon would be able to point at their bookshelf when you know they've got kids or grandkids and be like, "Oh, this is our medic. He wrote the story." And, and again, I didn't I didn't expect you know two thousand people to buy it the first month that it was out. I didn't expect more and more and more people to be interested in it uh, and to continue to be interested in it and continue to buy it here three years later. Um, so, 
uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting, happy accident that I became a writer. Um, and you know, it's really cool to get that story out. Um, but again, I, there was never an intention that a bunch of people would read it and, um, all over the world. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, I've kind of to, to do, to do, you know, a better service to the 75th Ranger Regiment and the guys I was with, I went back, I've gone back and, and rewritten it. Um, it's got about 25% more content now and it's definitely edited a lot better. Uh, it'll have a new cover and a new, uh, a forward by someone who, um, I'm not going to name right now, but I think you probably follow them on Instagram as well. He's, he's a, a very well-known Ranger sniper. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, a, a good friend of mine who I, my last deployment was his first deployment and, uh, I'm, you know, I'm excited to have him, you know, uh, involved in that project as well. So, um, yeah, man, I'm, 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 I'm excited to kind of get that out in a new light and, and it be packaged a little bit better than it was before. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, I really enjoyed reading it. And then um, I think when I read it, it was already out for a couple of months, maybe. Um, and I think Honest Simulation was about to come out when I first read Lest We Forget. Uh, but it's, it's interesting that you, you mentioned how it was like a kind of a cathartic uh, process for you because... I've had a uh, a former MACB SOG, uh, Vietnam Eric Green Beret on the show, and he was on a couple of times, uh, a guy by the name of Mike Stahl, and, you know, one thing he spoke about is he had a, uh, I think it was maybe a nephew or a, a brother-in-law, someone who was close to him and related to him, who also served in a in an infantry unit in Vietnam, and he said when they both came home from the war they didn't have one conversation about Vietnam. And I think, uh, you know, kind of holding that in and not talking about it could, could, uh, add to the process of, you know, dealing with the separation anxiety or, or PTSD. And what he said was, you know, years later talking about it was very, uh, had a catharsis effect for him. And then I've had people come on the podcast as well who who really haven't spoken about any of their military experience up until the point that they got on the podcast, and they've had a, a similar um, feeling about doing it, you know. So I think that's one thing, you know, guys should also consider if, if you know there's people they trust, people they love that they can have these type of conversations with, um, you know, just just to kind of have a. a you know, talk about your experiences, reflect on it. And then, you know, like you said, you wrote a book. It started out as an article, turned into a book, and then that led to so much more, you know. So, uh, you know, you never know where it can take you. Um, so, Leo, so can we just talk a little bit about... Um, so in the book, you, you talked somewhat of some of your deployment to Iraq and somewhat of some of your deployments to Afghanistan. Uh, previously, on a previous episode, I had a... Uh, 18 Delta Special Forces medic by the name of Travis Osborne. And um, Travis was a part of the rescue of Marcus Luttrell. And, uh, you know, there was there was several different uh, special operations units out there, you know, uh, in the mountains of Afghanistan uh, looking for Marcus. You happen to be a part of that rescue effort. Could you talk just a little bit about that for the audience? Yeah, we've really, my platoon played kind of a tertiary role. Um, we were actually still in Georgia. We were getting ready to deploy uh, to Bagram, um, but our platoon, our platoon specifically, uh, Charlie One was, was ripped out uh, a little bit early because that was going on. 
Um, we essentially had enough time to land in Bagram. Uh, we fitted with uh, ammunition and MREs, uh, got a quick mission brief, and then I think within 12 hours, as soon as night fell again, uh, we were on a bird up to uh, up to the Konar province to uh, assist in the search and rescue. Now, at that point, there had already been, like you said, several other special operations units on the ground. Second Ranger Battalion had been up there for quite some time, uh, doing a lot of really hard walking. Uh, my platoon's role was essentially... Um, um, to, to look for initially, I believe uh, it was for Danny Dietz, and then that switched over. Um, we had, we we've, our platoon ended up finding Matt Axelson the second day, I believe, that we were walking around uh, the mountains. Um, and so, again, at that point, we weren't even sure on the ground. Uh, we knew that there was four seals missing. We weren't sure that any of them uh, were alive or dead. We, you know, all we knew is that we were up there looking for uh, for these four guys. So, um, like I said, I think I believe on our second day there, we, we found Matt Axelson, um, and by the end of the third day, we were essentially being called for exfil uh, because at that point, uh, the, the other the three bodies, Mike Murphy, Danny Dietz, and Matt Axelson, had been recovered and. Uh, Marcus had been found, uh, I believe, in a village, and then um, and then brought brought back to uh, back to a Ford operating base. So um, our particular mission at that point was over. We spent about four days um, there in the mountains, walking around looking um, uh, for those guys. So again, we played our platoon played a small part in a very very large operation. Um, I gave my account, I think, for one chapter, unless we forget of you know my perspective on that mission. Uh, there was a lot of guys, you know, Air Force. Uh, pararescue combat controllers, um, you know, there was Marines on the ground, there was obviously um, uh, members of SEAL Team 10 uh, on the ground, and I'm sure other, other SEAL teams as well, um, other, other Ranger platoons, and it was a, it was a massive organized effort. Um, a friend of mine named Peter Nealon wrote a, a pretty cool, very short book, like an e-book only, it was like 60 pages, where he interviewed as many of these people that were involved in that mission as he possibly could and tried to give a, a pretty a pretty good overview account um, of that entire search and rescue mission. It didn't really talk anything about the, the initial Red Wings, but rather the entire 60 pages was on Red Wings 2. Um, you know, and so it was kind of cool. He interviewed the combat rescue officer who was, who was coordinating a lot of the, the um, that mission and whatnot. So uh, again, you know, as a platoon medic at that time, uh, you know, I played a small role in that. And, and I told that from my perspective and, and, you know, what I saw on the ground, I, I think I, I, I wasn't supposed to, but I had a camera with me. Um, if, if my platoon sergeant found that out, I probably would have been kicked out of range of battalion's <laughs> time. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I snapped a couple of photos on that operation and, and slapped them in that book as well. Um, grainy they be, um, because it was a $4 disposable Walgreens camera that I snapped some of the only photos I believe from that operation. Um, so, you know, I've got those, uh, which was kind of a cool thing and, and, and whatnot, but yeah, it was, it was one of what I, I, I think is somewhere close to 150 missions that I did as a ranger. Um, you know, it was definitely one that, um, has gone down in the books historically. Uh, and you know, it's, you know, I'm, you know, a lot of honor being associated with that particular mission, but also with the other, you know, 150 that I was, I was, um, able to be able to be in a unit like third ranger battalion and be with those guys um for not just that one but for all of them yeah i think one of the pictures and to me i thought it was kind of an iconic image of because you, when you guys were on your movement 
um, you know, very, very hot, uh, you know, harsh terrain, walking up hills with, with packs and, and all your gear and stuff. Uh, guys needed IV fluid in order to continue going, right? Yeah, I think I started lines on five or six of our guys during those four days. And I mean, you have to understand these aren't guys who are um, like off the couch, you know, like these are these are a very in shape um, people with a, that maintain a very high um, level of fitness. And I mean, we got dropped off, I believe, somewhere around 9,500 feet in, in elevation. Uh, so we had the altitude to contend to. And we walked um, up and down through some, you know, um, some very nasty terrain, a very steep terrain and very, very hot. I mean, it was June 28th was the initial firefight. Um, and then, you know, it was it was almost I want to say like two weeks of the uh, Operation Red Wings 2 or the recovery for those guys. Uh, that was going on. So there was a lot of hard walking by a lot of very hard men uh, in that, in that arena. And yeah, I mean, dudes were taking IVs and, you know, kind of like where normally I'd be like, all right, dude, you're, you're on profile for the next two days. It's like, sorry, but that's not an option. Um, you know, you know, put your pack back on, get your radio back up and, you know, we, we got to get moving, you know, take these oral hydration tablets and, and, you know, take this bag IV fluid and, and we got to drive on and, you know, guys really, really sucked it up because they knew that, you know, their, their fellow, um, U.S. service members were out there in harm's way. And if there was anything they could do, even if they were already already dead, even if it's just to recover their body, those guys from those units will will walk until their feet are bloody nubs um, in, in order to just bring back a body. Um, and it was it was a collective shared you know suffering. But like we wouldn't have had it any other way. I don't think any of the guys would have capitulated in the face of that level of um, of adversity, you know, just because they, you know, were, were, um, essentially going down as heat casualties. It didn't really matter to them, you know, throw IVs and then let's keep, let's keep this job going until all of these American service members bodies are, are recovered or until we, we, we get them back to post. Like that's, that's what matters. You know, never shall I leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. Um, you know, that's the most important thing. It's not, you know, if you're, um, you know, if you're a little bit hot or tired or, you know, and whatnot, you know, you, you suck that up in that moment and you, you drive on. Yeah. I think the, the image, um, I, I think I've shared it before on my Instagram, probably maybe last year or something like that. But I think that image really, um, captures all of that, you know? Um, so Travis Osborne, who I had on to talk about his part in that rescue, um, you know, he's a 20 year veteran of the army, you know, with a lot of deployments, um, he said that that was one of the hardest movements of his entire 20 year career, you know? Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, the medical side of of Ranger Battalion. Um, so in, in violence of action, uh, that's a, another great book that I recommend, uh, any of the audience to go uh, check out. And violence of action is like a collection of uh, different stories from different, uh, guys who served in Ranger Battalion and, and, uh, and in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, different times. And it's just very interesting. Um, the format is pretty unique. I haven't read a book like that. Um, and, and one of the chapters of, of Violence of Action, it, it was a chapter really dedicated to the contributions that the Ranger medics have made or, or Ranger Battalion has made to uh, trauma medicine or, you know, TCCC and, and spreading that out and, and really during this uh, global war on terror, um, 
more guys have survived wounds from the battlefield, I think, than any other point in, in the history of America. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the contributions Ranger Battalion has made to the overall improvement of, of medicine, military medicine? Um, yeah, a little bit. You know, I think, you know, Ranger Battalion in a regiment wide is, you know, they're not necessarily about doing things flashy, right? They're about mastering the basics. And if you look at statistically um, over 80% of preventable deaths in the battlefield or um, as a result of two different injuries, and that's extremity hemorrhage and tension pneumothorax, right? So essentially being able to place a tourniquet on a, on a arterial bleed of a limb uh, and being able to, to identify um, a, a pop lung, right, uh, and be able to do the intervention for that, which is needle decompression, um, to be able to do those two things, you're essentially already saving 80% of the preventable uh, deaths on the battlefield. Um, I, I don't know if it's, if it's 32 or 36 members from the 75th Ranger Regiment um, that we've lost since the onset of the global war on terrorism. Uh, but I do know that none of our casualties have been a result of preventable deaths. And I think that that comes as a result of mastering the basics. Every single ranger has to, um, you know, we have, uh, you know, kind of the ranger version of TCCC is ranger first responder or RFR. Uh, it falls in line with a lot of those protocols. Um, and really what it comes down to is teaching, not just teaching every every single ranger that comes through um, to how to master those basics of, of tourniquet application, of wound dressing, of uh, deflation of, uh, of uh, tension pneumothorax, um, to be able to start an IV, those, those basic things, but then to be able to give them the equipment to be able to do that um, is it really, it's the stopgap that's necessary to be able to get uh, the more advanced uh, medical provider uh, into play, right? Being the ranger medic. Uh, and then from that point, their skill set can take over and then be able to uh, transition to a, a higher echelon of care, you know, being, being a doctor uh, in a, in a, in a cache. So, Really, I think a lot of um, what um, Ranger Regiment has contributed in the last um, decade and a half of global war on terrorism is taking guys who aren't medics and training them up on the things that are that they're going to see the most of that they can actually do something about and making sure that they are highly proficient at those basic skills. Um, and then, you know, because, again, it's. It's, it's not always the medic who gets the guys first, Be, people being able to do self-aid and then buddy aid and then Medicaid in that order and being able to do it calm, composed, um, you know, that's really what's made the difference. And I think that's what we're seeing now in TCCC is like, look, you don't have to have all these fancy uh, skill sets in order to save a life. You just have to be able to calmly, collectively apply this tourniquet, uh, even though the entire world is essentially um, exploding around you. Um, you know, you have to be able to, to do that in a calm fashion. And, and if you can do that, then, you know, over 50% of the preventable deaths on the battlefield have now been eliminated. Um, so, you know, the, I think that's really the, the range of regiments there. From my personal opinion, uh, their, their primary uh, contribution from a medical sense um, for, as far as boots on the ground and then that transitioning into uh, civilian medicine where we're now seeing uh the tour tourniquet used to be a dirty, dirty word in um, in civilian emergency medicine. Like I said, I was an EMT before I went in the army, and the idea of putting a tourniquet on before was absolutely unheard of. Um, it's still because of civilian re response time is not something that is looked at as being 
to, you know, it's not the first thing that they, they, they throw out, uh, but it is something that is becoming more accepted now. Uh, and I think large in part because of the phenomenal um, outcomes that, that we've had because of uh, these relatively simple devices in combat. Uh, there, there's other things, um, different types of uh, trauma interventions that, you know, we kind of tried out on, uh, you know, CAD guys will try out and then it kind of filters down to the Ranger Regiment. And, um, you know, if it works for our guys and it tends to, to filter out army wide and then um, and then after that filtration process, then, you know, you start to see it adopted into um, an, into a civilian practice. So, um, you know, we kind of get to be the guinea pigs a little bit uh, for, for um, uh, you know, up front. And, you know, if we can't break it, I mean, if we can get it done, then uh, then, it, then it must be all right. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's something we we touched on a little bit. I had on a previous episode. I had a former eighteen Delta. Um, he started off as a eighteen Delta, and then he went into CAG and continued to work on the, on the medical side. And and that's pretty much what he was talking about was how, you know, not only are the medics proficient in, you know, working on on battlefield wounds, but now other guys can can do uh, can work on bleeding control and stuff like that. So would that basically mean like that, you know, all, all the guys in a Ranger platoon have tourniquets on them and, and, and can work on bleeding control that way? Every single guy. So we had the whole thing. Two is one. One is one. Uh, pretty much every single guy that I worked with carried two tourniquets. Uh, they carried, uh, for the most part, they carried a 14 gauge needle for needle decompression. Um, most of them carried uh, some type of chest seal device at the time. It was an Asher and it's moved on. I believe to a high dressing. Uh, a lot of them carried IV bags or, or at least an IV setup um, in their own individual first aid kit in their pouch. Um, guys, you know, wanted that skill set uh, for each squad that we had. We had a squad EMT for the most part. Um, so, you know, you know, I might be the only platoon medic out of between 32 and 38 guys, but I've got four people that have at least gone through civilian EMT. I've got every single guy trained up and it's my responsibility as a ranger medic uh, while I'm in battalion to ensure that each one of my guys can um, effectively and rapidly apply a tourniquet, can do wound dressing with an Israeli trauma dressing, which is another um, another piece of equipment that every single one of those guys was carrying uh, when I was there, that every single one of those guys can start an IV um, so that if I have a mass casualty and I'm the only medic that I can say, hey, you and you start IVs on these four guys, um, you and you do wound dressing on these guys while I'm over here doing the surgical crike on this more severely injured patient or I'm doing a chest tube uh, on this patient. It becomes uh, you, you have to become a force, uh, a force multiplier um, in that moment, you know, when you're having to uh, you're essentially having to delegate medical authority to other people. You need those people to know what they're doing. Uh, so RFR, again, Ranger First Responder is something is one of the one of the. Um, primary tasks of every ranger that they had, they were responsible for knowing um, and and being proficient at. So they got tested out. I would do some type of RFR training with my platoon. Uh, if not every month, it was every other month. They also had to go through that initially uh, through their what is now RASP Ranger Assessment Selection Program. Um, you know, they, they have to show proficiency at that and learn that uh, front, and then be essentially retaught that or or um, reshown that every you know maybe five to eight weeks. So they're constantly seeing that uh, they're they're very comfortable with it, and then that way, when when something bad does happen, that that the medic gets to be more of a triage officer and and starts um, delegating a medical authority to uh, the privates and, and the team leaders, uh, so that that they can all help uh, assist in saving those lives. 
Yeah, there's a uh, a ranger from Second uh, Ranger Battalion. Uh, he was a he is a Medal of Honor recipient uh, by the name of Leroy Petrie. And mm-hmm. um, you know his his story is that you know they were they hit a target and uh, I guess it was the Taliban. Uh, a guy threw a grenade. He ran, picked the grenade up, and went to throw it back. And I guess it exploded like shortly after it left his hand and it severed his uh, his hand. But what he ended up doing was he he applied the tourniquet to himself. He 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 worked on himself and that allowed the the guys he was with to continue the fight. And um that helped save some lives, you know. So I think that's just kind of an example of, you know, guys being proficient in uh, you know, trauma uh trauma medicine and bleeding control. Cause I, I don't think he was a medic. I think he was uh you know just an assault and a, a range of yeah, pretty sure he, uh, he was a squad leader. I'm pretty sure. Um, so, but yeah, no, not a medical professional. But again, that's the expectation that again, self aid, buddy aid, then Medicaid. That if you're injured, that the expectation of you, um, you know, is that you're able to apply your own tourniquet. Um, so just like you said, so that you can keep your other guys in the fight. Uh, and then as soon as that tourniquet's applied, I'm pretty sure uh, that that uh, Leroy Petre continued to fire back with his good hand, um, you know, after after he had uh, hemostasis or hemorrhage control uh, on that bleed. He's got a really cool robo hand now. If you ever see pictures of him, right? Yeah. He's got he's got that metal hand. And, um, but you know, like, and I don't think that was the only injury that he sustained during that, that during that. Um, uh, during that firefight. Oh no, um, no. But again, it's through that constant repetitive training. Um, that that guys get accustomed to, okay, this is a lot of blood. This is what's happening. I'm going to stay calm. I'm going to apply this tourniquet because this is what I know how to do. Um, and then I'm going to get back in the fight. I'm going to call for a medic. And then hopefully a medic can get to me soon enough to be able to, you know, uh, do stump dressing or whatever it is at that point uh, to assess me for any other further damage or injuries. Uh, but yeah, the expectation of every single person who wears a tambourine and it's in the 75th Ranger Regiment is that they can do that for themselves. Um, and they can do that for the buddy that's right next to them, regardless of whether they're a medic or not. And that fact that, that has been drilled home, um, that mentality has saved a significant amount of, of Ranger lives. And I think that there has been a trickle effect uh, from that mentality into um, other units in the U.S. military, as well as um, throughout civilian society. And then now what, what you know, I'm, I'm very honored to be a part of, like I said, with Team 5 is to be able to go and give some of those lessons, those Ranger first responder lessons to, you know, these elite Peruvian commandos. Um, you know, they're getting involved in a significant amount of uh, conflict there with, with the narcos. Um, you know, I asked the 27 guys first day, first question, how many of you have, by show of hands, how many of you have uh, treated a trauma patient in a, in a combat environment? Half of them raised their hands. Um, half of those 27 guys had, had actually treated patients, I'm not sure, under fire or not. Uh, but in, in that type of an environment. And so to be able to pass along those lessons learned as a medic and in ranger battalion to other foreign militaries to keep their guys alive, um, you know, I, I think is a very, it's a cool thing. You know, it, it's, it's getting guys back home to their families. And I think that that's very important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Leo, man, I just want to thank you for taking out the time to come on. I know, you're busy writing and, and working on a lot of things, so I really appreciate it. Um, for anyone who's interested in keeping up with you and, and um, things like that, is, is there a social media handle or somewhere they can go to, to kind of follow you? Uh, yeah, I try to simplify things um, as much as possible. Just my first and last name. 
um, Leo Jenkins. It's Leo Jenkins on Instagram. It's Leo Jenkins on Twitter. It's, I think, Leo Jenkins author on Facebook. Um, there's a website that I'm trying to build right now that's of the same namesake. Um, same thing on Amazon. If anybody tries to get a hold of me, just type my name into Google and you'll, you'll find me pretty quick. So um, nice. I'm always field any questions about being a ranger medic or about the assimilation process of uh you know coming back from war um about writing about traveling uh, like i said when you get ready to go nomad man hit me up and uh and we'll I'll, we'll exchange notes yeah definitely man it's it's something that i you know i like it's something that i want to say you know towards the end of my lifetime that i i did it you know what i mean so i'll definitely be hitting you up i'm just not sure when okay cool um, so, and, and also, uh, before we get off, for anyone who wants to get your books, they can pick the best place to get that is at Amazon.com? Yep. Just right. go to Amazon.com and type in Leo Jenkins, and, and it's all there. All right, cool, man. Uh, you know, once again, thank you for uh, taking out the time and coming on, and, and thank you for your service. Thank you. Appreciate it. No problem. Leo's books were... And are some of my favorite books to come out of this generation of veterans from the global war on terror, as Leo had served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, Leo is a very good writer. I think he's a, an exceptionally good writer. And he's, um, you know, the, the way that he's living his life now, I, I think is so awesome uh, to, you know, just sell your house, sell your car, sell your business and just you know, get on the road and just, you know, go wherever the road takes you. And I think uh, nowadays, a lot of people are kind of confined to the uh, nine to five lifestyle and, you know, just working to pay bills and, you know, working to save and, you know, take your, your one vacation a year kind of routine. And, um, you know, I, I think it's awesome that Leo has been able to you know, heal himself and, and find himself again and find his passion through his travels and, uh, you know, like he said, becoming one with nature and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so with that being said, I'll conclude this episode. Uh, once again, I would like to remind the audience that the Global Recon Podcast Facebook group is open. Uh, all you got to do is search Global Recon Podcast on Facebook if you're interested in joining. It's just a place where... Uh, the listeners and even some of the guests on the show could share ideas and um, things like that and just kind of mingle. So just go to Facebook and check out Global Recon Podcast. Uh, my website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook account is FB Recon. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second Instagram account is Black Ops Matter. The third Instagram account is Global Recon underscore Inc. Uh, check them out. On Twitter, it's IG Recon. On LinkedIn, it's Global Recon. I encourage all of the listeners to download the episodes, to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, share it with your friends and family, and uh, help us stay at the top of the government and national categories on iTunes. And that way, it'll be easier to provide you guys with high-quality content. Once again, I would like to extend my condolences to the family of FDNY Battalion Chief Michael J. Fay, who was killed in the Bronx today uh, during an explosion at a, a marijuana grow house. Uh, and, you know, this is for the Chiefs family and for first responders everywhere. Uh, we appreciate everything you do.